Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, the Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this podcast series, we're taking ourselves off mute and ensuring maximum bandwidth availability as we engage in the interminable Zoom call that is UK trade policy. And today, things get a little tasty as we examine the question of food standards and how they will affect Britain's post-Brexit international trade. Whenever this topic crops up, it's never long before the vexed issue of chlorinated chicken from the United States rears its ugly head. And no doubt, we'll be contemplating the aforementioned poultry in due course. But the question is, of course, a much broader one. Who actually sets food standards for international trade and in whose interests are these standards set? As the UK leaves the EU, will we be diverging from the European food standards that have applied in Britain for the last few decades? What would be the benefits of diverging? What might be the risks of not diverging? Well, to slice this issue up into digestible portions, we have another fantastic lineup of expert guests with us today. I'm joined once again by Dr. Emily Lydgate, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Law at the University of Sussex and Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm also joined by David Hennig, former trade negotiator, social media polymath and Director of the UK Trade Policy Project. And also with us today is Professor Fiona Smith, Professor in International Economic Law at the University of Leeds and a specialist in international agricultural trade. Thank you all so much for joining us today. David, when we talk about food standards, what are we actually referring to? What sort of standards or regulations do we mean? Food standards means... Broadly, the regulations that apply to producing and selling food in the UK. And what we mean even more specifically than that is pretty much every product for sale in the UK, frankly, in other developed countries as well, there are regulations around how it's produced, how it must be sold, what's allowed, what's not allowed, the safety features, etc. And for food, it's probably the most regulated of all. So, way back in the day, when there was horror in the UK, that Brussels was going to regulate bendy bananas, well, in fact, that was quite normal. It's quite normal for uh, countries to regulate their food products. And we know that as food standards, which does get a little complicated as standards technically are voluntary and regulations are mandatory. But we're talking about the mandatory regulations that must be met for food to be declared safe and sold in the UK. Fiona Smith, how are food standards regulated in international law? There's a thing called Codex Alimentarius, which sounds like a spell from Harry Potter, but it actually turns out to be a UN sort of standard for food products. And in the WTO, there's the sanitary and phytosanitary agreement. But how much teeth do these international agreements actually have? It's an interesting point, Chris, and thanks for that. So Codex is an organisation and set up in order to really look into the detail of, of the kind of standards that David's been talking about, exactly 
know, what about chlorinated chicken? Is it safe? Is it not? What about hormone-treated beef? Is it safe? Is it not? And, and it's the international experts getting together and objectively deciding the standard based on the science. And then the sanitary and the phytosanitary agreement that you mentioned, the, the WTO-SPS agreement, as it's often referred to, is a trade agreement agreed by all its 164 members, including the UK, and that's about how to trade fairly, how to trade in a non-discriminatory way. So it's a really easy restriction to say, well, actually, we don't like your food standards. You know, the UK doesn't want them. So we just increase the trade restriction. What the SPS agreement said is, no, we should be trying to regulate on the basis of an international standard. And Codex is one of those recognised international standards. So the SPS recognises Codex. So, Emily Lidgate, we have in the UK, as David just mentioned, been uh, subject to EU food regulations for the last few decades. To what extent has the EU had kind of regulatory reach in this subject? To what extent do member states have the ability to set their own laws? And, and if so, in what areas? So I would say the, the EU has had a deep regulatory reach. The UK has outsourced quite a bit of its food standards regulation to the EU. So things like rules on pesticides or GMOs or antibiotics for livestock, determining what food additives are allowed or what you can wash your chicken or your, or your beef with, etc. The UK has some autonomy in areas that don't restrict uh, freedom of movement of goods around Europe. So for example, nations of the UK could choose not to cultivate a particular GMO or, or, or use a particular pesticide. But if that if it's approved at the EU level, they aren't allowed to prevent that from entering in the form of whatever product it's, it's embedded into. And the UK also has some autonomy in terms of how it implements EU requirements, how it's going to monitor pesticide use, for example. But definitely there's a huge cut and paste job of EU legislation back into the UK rule books and also a big job of replicating regulatory functions that, that we've sort of outsourced to EU bodies because it's not just about the rules, it's about, you know, EU bodies have overseen a lot of our processes like approving new pesticides or new food additives or novel foods or what have you. So as we leave the European Union, we'll be taking the EU's body of, of food law with us. David, do you detect any signs that the UK government is, is planning to make any changes or to diverge from EU food law as it currently stands? So I think this is where it gets interesting, particularly interesting. So, yes, we've heard that there are these codex standards, but many people criticise those as being minimal. And in fact, EU regulations exceed, in some cases, the, the codex standards, such that the EU prohibits uh, chlorinated chicken, I've got to mention it, uh, hormone-treated beef. The EU does not allow those. And there are some criticisms of codex standards that really they're not, they're not high enough. Then there are new issues that even the EU doesn't particularly uh, regulate very thoroughly. The antimicrobial resistance, the overuse of antibiotics, for example, in, uh, in food, or animal welfare. So what you have is a situation where EU rules are relatively stringent, but you could be less stringent. You could go back towards codex minimum levels and allow chlorinated chicken and beef hormones, or you could take the advantage that the UK has of setting this from scratch to actually do something new and say, no, we're actually also going to regulate uh, imports if they, for example, overuse antibiotics. 
So the UK is in a unique position, really, on this. In the we have that choice from from scratch. Now, clearly, what choice we make affects domestic production. It will affect imports. It will affect our trade deals. This is a big decision that's um, got to be made, or a set of decisions, because it doesn't have to be the same. We could go minimum on in some areas. We could keep our existing in other areas. And you hope that the UK government is going to do something to, you know, to take advantage of that. Fiona, this is where the UK has sovereignty to change the rules if it wants to do so, but there would be trade implications with our closest neighbours in the EU if we diverged from the rules that they are following. Which way do you think the UK is going to bend on that one? I think we had quite a lot of confusion up until recently when Liz Truss gave a speech at Chatham House setting out the vision for the the UK's new trade policy. And in that, she said that she would be very interested for the UK to start entering into trade agreements with close neighbours, so very much seeking an agreement with the EU that would recognise the UK standards, but that the UK would be looking to regulate in a different way. So what we're seeing in that Chatham House speech is maybe a move away from this precautionary principle that the EU's always adopted. And that is a change from the position currently under the EU. Just to say onto that, I mean, I think in theory that's the, the EU's position on precautionary principle, but it's not always followed through. Producer interests do play a part. And in some areas of the EU, you could argue that their regulations are not as high as they should be. So I just want to be clear that you know the EU is not the gold standard here. That's an interesting comment because I think the EU likes to see itself as setting a gold standard or, or at least a very high standard. And I think it begs the question. Most countries like to think of their own food standards as being very high quality. I mean, certainly no government will ever boast of having low quality food standards. Can we genuinely speak of UK or EU food standards being superior to those of other countries or, or are they just different? I think we can see them as different, and I think it depends very much on the values of the country concerned. So for the UK, we often hear in the news that animal welfare is very important to us. We're a country of animal lovers, and it's very important to society that we protect animal welfare. And certainly that's something that feeds through into the EU as well. The EU actually got into trouble in the WTO because it wanted to restrict the import of products that were designed to protect the welfare of seals and it hadn't quite got it right so it was ended up being a violation of WTO law so I think this idea of protecting animal welfare is very very important so animals should be reared to protect in a very positive way whereas that's not necessarily the case in in other jurisdictions perhaps we might see um, China as a country with different animal welfare requirements so We might say that we all want our food to be safe, but once we're talking about the way that it's produced and the ethical questions, then then that we get true divergence there. And of course, the UK is, is seeking to agree free trade agreements with countries all around the world, currently negotiating with the United States, Australia, New Zealand. It has aspirations elsewhere as well. And Emily, I'm sure that food standards will be a big issue in these negotiations, especially if the UK feels that it needs to choose in some extent between the food regulatory environment of the country that it's doing a trade deal with with and that of the EU, which it's leaving behind. Absolutely. And just one follow-up comment on this question. We were all being very, very diplomatic about, you know, is the EU the gold standard, which is, um, 
you know, absolutely. I, I agree that often this debate is is really cast in terms of science. Is the EU scientific or not? And, you know, there's this great quote from someone in the Bush administration saying, we think of the precautionary principle as being a myth like a unicorn. And that's more or less what it says on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce website. So it gets really cast in this science. We're scientific in the U.S. and we're not scientific in the EU. But a lot of the EU's regulations basically are set up to avoid intensification, intensive production. So things like antibiotic use, hormones, chlorinated chicken, you know, all of these things that make it easier to pack animals closer together. So that was just on that point. But and, and in terms of future FTAs, pretty much the exclusive focus has been on the U.S. and, and U.S. Animal, animal welfare or food safety being lower. But yes, the issue goes beyond chlorinated chicken. Yes, you know, it goes it goes beyond the US because once we step out of the EU's, you know, regulatory space, there's this question, as Fiona was saying, are we going to move away from this general approach? And as David is was saying, which is, you know, precautionary, at least nominally. So if you look at, you know, Australia trade talks that, you know, they want us to loosen restrictions on hormones and antibiotics. India, we know, wants us to relax rules on pesticides. Another issue here is CPTPP that has an SPS chapter, a food food standards chapter, which was basically written by the U.S. and explicitly limits the scope of the precautionary principle. So even if the U.S. trade deal proves, you know, too difficult to achieve for whatever reasons, and there are challenges there, if we ratify CPTPP and then, you know, the Biden administration eventually gets around to doing the same, then then I think it's it's basically the same outcome anyway. This supposedly scientific approach of the US. Now, a little known fact, the US uh, bans haggis from their market. Obviously, we can eat it here. There doesn't obviously appear to be any science behind the US's ban of haggis. They merely say that they think that uh, that part of a sheet that's going in there is unsafe, but there's no actual evidence for it. So the US is as perfectly capable as anybody else of banning a product that they don't particularly like. And so there is... um, an interest group dimension here as for the EU, as for the US. And I think it's interesting to hear that said about, you know, the EU wants to avoid intensive farming systems. Obviously, the US has that. That explains part of the difference. So question then for the UK, what's in our interest? So this goes beyond safety. I mean, safety is is a part of this, but there's a lot of other factors that are a part of it as well. I think the second point about trade agreements is You won't find, except in the US-China agreement, which is an exception, a sentence saying, the country's concerned shall accept chlorinated chicken. Because you're not going to put specific regulations normally in there. What you're doing is you're saying the parties shall treat each other's food as equally safe and will then determine it between themselves. Now, clearly, if you're doing that agreement with the US, they're expecting that you are then going to declare all of their food to be perfectly safe. And yes, chlorinated chicken, yes, hormone-treated beef, yes, rectopamine-treated uh, pork. Recently, the uh, the Taiwanese parliament uh, were actually throwing bits of meat at each other, apparently, over a trade deal with the US that meant that they would import uh, pork treated with ractopamine. Now, I'm not sure the same would happen in the House of Commons, but it's interesting to, to wonder whether our MPs will start throwing bits of meat at each other. I don't think so. So, you know, there's a lot to disentangle here, and that's part of the reason why sometimes it feels like we trade experts can never quite give a straight answer to the question, you know, how is this trade deal going to affect our food? Well, the answer is we can't be absolutely certain because a lot depends on what happens after it is implemented. 
And Fiona, if you're a producer, if you're a farmer, should you be scared of the prospect of new UK trade deals or will they serve to protect your interests? I think one of the big questions for UK farmers is this issue of level playing fields. This is a term that's often bandied around. And the big argument with the UK farmers has been that the UK is looking to reduce restrictions on imports. So it's looking to reduce import taxes and tariffs. And by entering into trade deals with large exporters, the US being one, the South American countries, the Mercosur being another potential trade agreement, these goods coming in, they're cheaply produced in the the domestic jurisdiction of the US and and Brazil in the case. So they're cheaply produced. They're going to come in and flood the UK market because the UK farmers are still required to meet domestic rules, which are very high animal welfare, limited use of pesticides and moving increasingly, as we've just heard with the recent announcement of the new environmental land management schemes to to support farmers in the UK going forward. We just heard that the, the financial support packages that the UK farmers were used to under the EU common agricultural policies, they will be progressively removed. So the argument in the UK is sort of twofold. One is the the fear that the UK trade policy will not treat domestic farmers equally to products coming in. And secondly, that the domestic farmers will just be continually held to higher standards without any recognition that there's a market problem. So do they have anything to fear? Certainly, we know that the EU intends to continue subsidising its own farmers. And without a a trade deal in place, the UK will lose one of its major export markets, which is the the lamb exports to to France. They're going to lose that because of the high tariffs that the EU will impose. So that's a worry. And in terms of goods coming in, certainly the US is looking to offload quite a lot of its production that it's been unable to export to China because of the US-China trade war. So it worries about exports of soy. So the US farmers have been lobbying to try and get new markets as a result of losing their export market to China. So, So there are some concerns and they're not unrealistic. Will there be a flood? Well, I think it takes time to get the the goods across the Atlantic in the case of the US and there'll be a cost there. So certainly there will be a a fundamental change, but a flood, maybe not immediately. Just um, speculating here because the UK government, as we're saying, has held its cards a bit close to its chest. But I wonder if if they're thinking about having UK farmers, you know, it seems that there are going to be changes. And I wonder if they're going to have UK farmers be sort of in the boutique high-end range and then import cheap food from, from other countries. I wonder if that's the grand plan. I think you're right, Emily. I mean, just thinking about it, um, I mean, certainly we can see George Eustace making statements about high quality, uh, excellent uh, UK produce being very valued abroad. So there are statements that give an indication that that might be the case. One of the issues that has been raised is that the 
concerns maybe in the Chinese market of the quality of milk and milk powder into the baby formula. Certainly, China has been looking to Australia in terms of the, getting access to milk for milk powder because of the worries within China as to the contamination of baby milk. So that there's been looking, well, you know, can you get milk from elsewhere? We know at the moment that China and Australia have had a major falling out in terms of trade. So China is looking to access maybe new markets. So this idea that UK can export high quality food to these markets where they are do have concerns about food safety. There are sort of hints that we may well be going that way. So maybe, yeah, import cheap, export expensive. It starts to get complicated in a number of ways starts together here it already feels quite complicated but um so there are a few aspects to that so as soon as we lower the level of regulation let's say we do allow u.s food to come in uh exporters are going to face more inspections to make sure that they in turn meet the requirements of the eu or or others it becomes more expensive to export even for the higher cost producers so that's one element of this that needs to be considered another is the link between food producers primary food producers and um, processed food and how easy it will be to sell processed food around and clearly you know the market for primary agricultural produce is only a certain level but actually the uk is well known for various processed foods so how does that get affected as well you sort of mentioned it but what's the level of expectation and regulation on domestic production that if the laws are very strict on domestic production the unfairness is that the laws aren't as strict on on imports and that can come in all manner of ways there's been complaints i've seen in the last few months about importing um liquid egg i think it was from ukraine and that the ukrainian uh, production was lower animal welfare and various other standards compared to to the uk so it soon becomes a very complex issue and trying to disentangle all of the all of these bits is difficult and so it really does need a consistent approach from the UK government okay what are we going to do we're going to go for a high level of protection we're going to do the EU we're going to say we've got a precautionary principle or we're going to go for the US and say everything codex that's fine that's the that's the minimum or we're going to go higher rather than if we start to sort of break all of this down it gets ferociously complex So the UK is just taking its place as an autonomous member of the World Trade Organization. And as such, it will have to justify some restrictions that it imposes itself on imports of goods like hormone-treated beef and like chlorinated chicken. Will the WTO, to put it simply, will the WTO allow the UK to continue those bans or does it have to make the case separately from the case which the EU has previously made on its behalf? This is an interesting one, and I don't know the answer to this. So this is my best guess. So the ban on hormone-treated beef has been declared to be a violation of the WTO rules, and the EU, instead of removing it, entered into a negotiation with the US and said, actually, we're not going to change our practices because this is too important to our consumers. We'll enter into a negotiation with you to resolve 
the problem. So we'll have to remember, this is an example that David was talking about, about one of those instances where countries make a decision that the issue is too important to them and they sort of step around the rules, shall we say. I think it's unclear, and and, I'm looking to Emily as a fellow trade lawyer here to answer this question. I think it's unclear whether the fact that the UK was a member of the EU at the time of this litigation, whether the UK takes the, the benefit or the burden of this judgment going forward and therefore has to carry on with the uh, agreement that the EU has in place with the US. I think there's still a question about that. Certainly, as an independent member of the WTO, the UK could be, if the UK carries on with this hormone-treated beef restriction, then we are open to challenge by other members of the WTO. So I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on the the legacy problem, Emily. It's just a tricky one in trade law. Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's obviously a strange move to abandon all our existing standards on day one because, you know, they're process oriented, which is what some commentators seem to be suggesting we, we have to do. You know, these are these are the standards we've had for years and virtually all environmental and animal welfare regulation is, is process oriented. So if we're going to say that it has to be abandoned because it's WTO illegal, there's going to be some pretty big consequences there. But I do think the UK will have to stand on its own two feet in the WTO and that will manifest as it coming under diplomatic pressure in places like the WTO SPS committee where the U.S. can can basically say you need to you need to to bring this into line. Also, an FTA negotiation with the U.S. will be a great place to try to to extract some concessions there. So, I definitely think diplomatic pressure and also possibly challenging some EU derived regulation in a WTO dispute, as Fiona says, for hormones we already know they're they're WTO illegal. You know, there isn't a blanket prohibition against distinguishing between products based on how they're produced in WTO law. You know, the UK can present its food standards regulation as, as public health or SPS regulation. And then if it does that, you know, it's all it's all about the details of the regulation and how the UK is presenting its risk assessment, its use of scientific evidence. I think it's there's some uncertainty there as to what as to what an outcome of a dispute would be. But it's probably not irrelevant to say here that, you know, the WTO dispute settlement body is is currently not really functioning. <laughs> and you know, the, then there's also, you know, the possibility that the UK could defend its food safety or food standards regulation as being about animal welfare, in which case the sort of the legal questions are a bit different. They're about is it sort of logical and transparent and and even handed. So there are unresolved questions, and I don't think we should sort of say that the WTO won't sort of pose a challenge to UK food standards. I'm going to add to this as well with a couple of points. The first is that recently, maybe a few weeks ago, pretty much every WTO trade lawyer who was on Twitter had about a five-day conversation on the entire question of, um, you know, to what extent animal welfare could be and production methods could be WTO allowable as a reason to prohibit products. And the impression one got from that conversation, insofar as they managed to come to a consensus, which wasn't completely, was that the feeling is that the expectations in the WTO are changing. So law is not a sta- is not static. And the feeling being that, you know, we are moving into, into the point of saying that actually, you know, if consumers expect that, you know, animal welfare might be an issue on which governments may legislate, that may also apply to imports. And that so long as any uh, restrictions were non-discriminatory, so entirely open for any country to, to meet, then that 
could be allowable. Now, it's quite clear to me that the UK saying no to chlorinated chicken because the, the US is, is around, that, that's clearly discriminatory. But if you have then a policy framework, so this is, I think, the, the point of where the UK needs to come in, if you have a clear policy framework which says that our policy towards imports is they must be of a, of a high standard, and then you actually detail something underneath it, I think you've got a chance, a pretty good chance actually in WTO, that you will have justification for prohibiting products. And to be fair to the UK government, this is actually what they've done. They have actually said, we intend to maintain high standards. So they've given themselves the, the, the chance, I think, to justify going beyond existing practice, certainly maintaining the existing restrictions, but potentially even going beyond it or finding a, a new way to decide by the fact that of, of stating that this is an important issue to the country. And yes, there are restrictions other than safety. So there are reasons why you can have prohibitions on, on imports. So there's definitely the scope there. But yes, a lot would depend on the individual measure under consideration. And yeah, don't expect US producers to be entirely happy with a lot of this. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to remember that the WTO and the EU are completely different organisations. So the EU really did look, as Emily said earlier, that it does have a comprehensive food law that the UK was then automatically signed up to. But WTO doesn't work in the same way. So in terms of WTO, the rules are quite clear in the fact that the UK can set its own food policy ambition. So if the UK wants to retain high animal welfare, really high food safety, food quality, that ambition is fine. WTO rules have nothing to say about that. And as David rightly said, when where WTO rules kick in is how the UK implements this policy. The question that I wanted to sort of wrap up by asking you is about this question of this global battle that's going on, this battle of supremacy between the trade superpowers of the world. We talk about the Brussels effect, the impact which EU legislation has kind of creating a sort of centre of gravity that influences the laws which apply to the countries with which it trades. The EU, as we've been discussing, has more of a sort of precautionary approach to food standards in particular. The US has a more, to put it in shorthand, a more science-led approach. And the UK is currently trying to do trade deals, as at the time of recording this podcast, with both of those parties. I'm wondering which way the UK will bend. Will it ultimately have to choose one sphere of orbit or the other, or can it sort of sit on the fence and stay in the middle? I think I'm going to have a go at uh, at starting that. Before the Brussels effect, there was something called the California effect. And the California effect held that uh, when California legislated, it set pretty high regulations. And then the rest of the US tended to follow because California is the most lucrative market in the the US. And other uh, jurisdictions wanted to make sure they met California standards. And Californian producers lobbied nationally to to, uh, encourage higher standards, as that was in their interest as well. Why do I mention this now? California has just voted a couple of years ago in one of their public votes that um, animal welfare should be uh, should be set at pretty high levels. Now, this is going through legal processes in the US as to whether California is going to be allowed to set minimum animal welfare levels for food being sold in the state. Now, if that happens then you're into a totally different situation of, you're not in the case of US and the EU, because the US is not going to have a single food standard. 
And these things change at various points. Where do I get to from all of that is, no, the US, should, the UK should not be following EU or US uh, or US standards. We should be following whatever happens to, uh, to suit us best for UK standards. I happen to believe that we can and should be setting them higher than either the EU or the, uh, the US, inviting people to uh, meet them, and that if they meet them, they can freely compete in the UK. That includes developing countries as well. That often gets mentioned as, oh, that would be unfair on developing countries. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I, you know, I, I would be very much in, in favour of a high level of regulation, but very much free competition once you, you meet that high level of regulation. Might be a bit of a minority view, mind. Fiona, do you share that view that Britain can forge its own path in terms of striking high food standards, irrespective of what's going on in Brussels or Washington? I think the ambition is to set really high food standards in the UK, but we have trade agreements in place with all the UK's major trading partners, irrespective of origin. So it's the ambition is certainly to set standards and sort of maybe influence others. Whether that's going to be the reality, I don't know. I think trade negotiations are as much a game of power and and the UK is a com- in a completely different position now than, than when it was, say, it was in a, a member of the EU. So the only reservation I have on what I've just said is that we've been talking a lot about the UK setting standards, but what we need to remember is there are significant standards that are set for food that are set by multinational corporations. And so a lot of trade may actually happen according to these private standards rather than according to any standards the UK government's setting. Emily, last word with you. Okay, so I'm going to weave in a plug to the podcast we just did on the internal market bill, because I think that, you know, we should keep in mind that the the UK consists of four nations. And one of these, Scotland, has explicitly said that it wants to maintain alignment with EU legislation. So, you know, if the UK central government insists on moving away from EU approaches, it might have some sort of internal issues on its hands as well. And I'd also like to ask David a question, which is, where is this mythical gold standard for food safety? (laughs) It's the one we're going to set. Well, there you heard it from the horse's mouth from David there. It will certainly be very interesting to see how food standards evolve in the UK as Britain forges its own path as an autonomous trading nation. There we have to wrap up our podcast today. I'd like to express my huge thanks to our guests for an enlightening discussion, to Dr. Emily Lidgate, to David Hennig, and to Professor Fiona Smith. And we couldn't have done it without all of you out there in Podcastville. So many thanks to all of you for listening. Join us again soon for another episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.